Oh, Father, as we turn now to your word, would you open it up to us and help us to understand it and help us to love it and help us to love you and to be more available to you through this encounter with your word. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I just want to say right now, I'm missing you guys and I'm missing being together and seeing your faces, although it's not difficult to imagine them. And I look forward to next week. Sometimes people repeat themselves when they forget what they said and they don't know that they're saying it again. I've certainly been guilty of that. Sometimes people repeat themselves because they know exactly what they said and they're saying it again on purpose for an important reason because it needs to be repeated. Back in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, we read about Jesus that he went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. That's Matthew 4.23. That sounds a little familiar, right? The very first verse in our passage today that we just read sounds almost identical. Matthew 9.35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Why is Matthew repeating himself? Well, this is one of those cases of intentional repetition. This is on purpose. These two statements, uh, if if you want the the fancy name, it's called an inclusio. Think of like inclusion, including something. But but basically think of them like bookends. And, And what they do as they repeat themselves is they mark off the beginning and the end of one of the sections in Matthew. Now remember, Matthew's got these kind of overlapping structures and overlapping sections. But this is a section that fleshes out what these two statements say. So what do these statements say? That he went, he went through all the towns, healing and, or teaching and healing. And what do we see in between these two bookends? Well, we see the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and teaching. And then we see these nine accounts that we've looked at in Matthew chapter nine over the past few weeks, Matthew chapters eight and nine of Jesus Uh, healing and delivering people from all of their sicknesses and afflictions. And and so what we see is that that in Matthew 4, 23, Matthew tells us what he's going to tell us, that Jesus, we're we're about to see Jesus teach the gospel of the kingdom and heal every disease and affliction. And then that's what we see. And then now at the end of this section, Matthew's summing it all up and telling us what we just saw and kind of marking this whole section off. And one of the things I just want to highlight here as we come to an end is that teaching the gospel of the kingdom, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and and the healing and the delivering ministries that Jesus did are not two completely different things. We've seen numbers of times in the past few weeks, more more than I expected actually, uh, that and that's that's one of the great things about preaching through a book, even if you're familiar with it, you just learn so much, is that is that the healing ministry of Jesus, the the ministry of delivering people from their afflictions, is connected to his his broader mission of bringing spiritual salvation, of healing us from the ultimate disease, the rot at the heart of our souls, forgiving our sins. Uh, The the good news of the gospel and the healing ministries are are very, very connected, right? Because sickness is is a signpost to sin. 
And so as Jesus tears down the signpost of sickness, he's making an announcement that he's going to deal with sin. And, and we see that even in the way that by healing people and delivering them from affliction, by, by conquering the spiritual enemies, he's giving us a picture of the new creation when these things are just going to be memories, uh, if that. And so, and so that's one of the great things that we've seen is this teaching of the kingdom and the healing, delivering ministries. They, they go hand in hand. Now, still you might wonder, why is Matthew uh, giving us this clue that this season of Jesus' ministry is coming to an end? Is Jesus done proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom? Is he finished healing and delivering people? Were there no more people to preach to? Are there no more afflicted people to deliver? And, and the answer is actually the opposite. The reason that this season's coming to an end is is, is the opposite of, of Jesus running out of opportunity. The reason for this transition point in Matthew is that there are way more people who need to hear the gospel and way more people who need to be delivered and healed than Jesus can effectively take care of in his body. Jesus is confined at this point to one body, and that's something by his choice. And so this ministry of healing and and preaching is not coming to an end. Rather, it's about to mushroom out and expand into something much bigger. But before before we get there, we want to see what's the connection point between this season and 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 you know what's the where's the mushroom start to flare out? Why why does why is there this change here? And and so that brings us to our second point. Right now, the, what we've been considering now is a summary of Jesus' ministry in verse thirty five. Now, in verse 36, we see a glimpse into Jesus' heart. Verse 36 says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. When Jesus saw the crowds, the crowds that lined up to see his miracles, the crowds that um, were there to be healed by him and to hear him preach, when Jesus saw these crowds, he had compassion on them. Compassion in, in the original language here is a very strong word. Even in English, if we think about it, passion, think of the word passion in there. It has to do with, with some, some really deep feelings for someone. And, and, and the original word uh, has also this very strong emotional component. Uh, maybe a, a good way of, of getting at the meaning of this word is, is that Jesus' heart went out to them. His heart went out to them. And, and he has compassion. His heart goes out to these crowds. Think about that. These are the crowds that have caused him significant problems. We've seen just in the past couple chapters that Jesus has to get away from the crowds sometimes. The, the crowds are full of people who, who don't understand yet who Jesus is. And yet he has compassion on them. His heart goes out to them. And this shows us something wonderful about the heart of Jesus. This is a glimpse into the heart of Jesus, that that he has the heart of a shepherd. Sheep are dumb. So I've heard from some people who take care of them and have seen that a little bit. And yet a shepherd takes care of them because his heart is inclined that way. And Jesus has the heart of a shepherd. And, And I say that he has the heart of a shepherd because verse 36 says he has compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. 
Now, this isn't the first time in the Bible that we've heard this language of sheep without a shepherd. It comes up a handful of times in the Old Testament. Many times in the Old Testament, God compares his people to sheep, which again is is not a very flattering comparison. Um, And and yet, at the times that, that God's people don't have good leaders, when there's not good leadership in place, he says that they're like sheep without a shepherd. And uh, this is one of the things in the study guide this week, which will be on the sermon page in a, in a few, in a little bit after we're done here, uh, that we get into some of this language because it's really important to understand the background here. And so in Matthew 9, we're getting a glimpse into the heart of Jesus. And not surprisingly, the heart of Jesus looks just like the heart of God as revealed in the Old Testament, as, as, as a, one who has a shepherd-like compassion on the masses, even though they can be so foolish and so difficult. So what does Jesus do with this compassion? His heart goes out to these crowds. There's so many of them. What does he do? Does he just feel it or does he actually do something about it? Well, what we see next is in verse 37 to 38, we see a call from Jesus to pray. That's where this goes. Verse 37, then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So don't miss this. Jesus' heart of compassion manifests itself in a call to pray. First, though, before we see this, we just want to notice that that the the imagery has changed a little bit at the beginning of of verse 37. Uh, In the last verse, we were talking about sheep and shepherds. And here in verse 37 and 38, we're talking about a harvest and laborers. And they're both agricultural metaphors that that have changed a little bit. But both of these would have been very familiar to the people of that day who saw sheep and shepherds and harvest and laborers uh, around them all the time. And it's also this picture of the harvest and laborers, not surprisingly, we should be ready for this, has some big Old Testament background to it. Just like God's people are often compared to sheep in the Old Testament, so they're often compared to grain that is or needs to be planted and then harvested. And and often, often in the Old Testament, this imagery of harvest is a picture of of judgment. The, the, The idea is that the sins of the people have made them ripe for judgment. And when God harvests them, it's the sense of him bringing them in as their sins have reached their right point and he, he brings them in for judgment. But that's not, that's not the sum total of this picture. In the book of Matthew, we've seen how this, this picture of a harvest can speak both to judgment and salvation. And, and we saw this on the lips of John the Baptist. Do you remember back in Matthew 3, verse 12? John the Baptist said this about the Messiah. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So winnowing is what you do with the grain after you harvest it. So these days we have combine harvesters that do all of this at once, but back then you'd harvest the wheat, then you'd bring it in, and then you'd winnow it. And you'd have these big winnowing forks that would, would thresh it out, and the, 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 the grain would be kept, and then the chaff would blow off or be put in the piles. And here he speaks about those piles being burned. And so here's, here's the idea from, 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 John, from what John is saying. 
the Messiah has come, the people will be harvested. So there's that picture of them being like grain that's gathered and harvested. And some are harvested to salvation, gathered into the Lord's barns. And others are harvested for judgment. They'll be burned. And Jesus uses actually very similar language in the parable of the weeds in Matthew 13, 24. And there's even some overlap in the parable of the soils. This, this idea of God's people being planted and harvested comes up more and more. And we'll get there in, in a couple of years. But here, here's the idea here in, in, what, in what John the Baptist is saying and in what Jesus is saying. The great end times harvest has already begun. Right, The kingdom of God is at hand. There's this idea that, that we've seen again and again that, that in the ministry of Jesus, the end times have already started now. The kingdom of God is at hand. The great end times harvest has already begun. And as Jesus preaches the kingdom, and as Jesus gives a preview of the kingdom, the final kingdom in his, in his healing ministries, some people are going to respond in faith and be saved. They're going to be harvested to salvation. Others, like the Pharisees, are not going to respond in faith. They're going to reject this. And in so doing, they too are being harvested to judgment. But either way, the, the, the ministry of Jesus has a separating effect, right? His winnowing fork is in his hand. The ministry of Jesus has this effect of, of separating people. You can't stay neutral with Jesus. You have to either acknowledge that he is who he says he is, or you reject him. And so you're either harvested to salvation or harvested to judgment. That's how this harvest works. And this harvest was work. Like a literal harvest of grain, workers needed to go out to proclaim the kingdom, to perform these deeds so that people could respond and be harvested either to judgment or, or to salvation. And Jesus could not complete this harvest by himself. Now, I hope that makes you a little bit uncomfortable, and it should. The, the, we should be nervous suggesting that there's something that Jesus can't do. But this is we need to remember that this is in a, the context of, of him being in, in the body, his incarnation. And Jesus chose to limit himself to a body in this time period. And so he couldn't, he wasn't everywhere all at once. And there was an urgency that the people be harvested into the kingdom while the time was right, before it was too late. You know, those of you who farm, that if you leave the grain out in the field for too long, it, it, it gets ruined. The harvest has got to happen. And so what Jesus is saying in verse 37 is that the harvest is plentiful, it's huge, it's massive, but the laborers are few. There weren't enough workers for the size of the harvest. And so that's where, again, what we're looking at here, he gives a call to pray. It's the first thing. He calls his disciples to pray for more workers. Therefore, pray earnestly. Now, pray earnestly comes from one word, and it's like a, an earnest prayer. <laughs> you, you could translate this, beg. Therefore, beg the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The, the harvest is the Lord's. He's the Lord of the harvest. The laborers who gather in the harvest are also his laborers. And if there's not enough laborers for the harvest, then prayer needs to be sent up to the Lord of the harvest, praying earnestly, begging 
that he would send out more laborers. So first, we've seen a summary of Jesus' ministry. We've seen a glimpse into Jesus' heart. We've seen a call from Jesus to pray. And now, in verses 10 to 5, we see a mission to Jesus' apostles. Right here, we're at one of those really important points where the chapter and verse divisions in your Bible can be really unhelpful. I actually have an edition of the Bible called a reader's edition that has no chapters or verses. And it's, it's delightful to, uh, to see it the way that it was initially uh, written. Um, on, on my Bible app on my phone, I can also turn those things off, turn off the chapters and verses, and you just read it. And, and if you do that here, you realize that when Matthew gets to the end of chapter 9 and this call to pray, that there's, there's nothing here that says, okay, that idea is done, package it up, send it off. Uh, the guys can talk about this at missions conferences, pray for more workers, that's great. Now we're on to a completely brand new idea. Jesus calls the 12 and sends them out. Okay? That's, that's not the case at all. If we're reading Matthew, the way it was initially written, no chapters or verses, you would have read Jesus calling his disciples to pray for the Lord of the harvest to send out more workers. And then right away, and he called to him his 12 disciples. And then verse 5, these 12 Jesus sent out. You see the connection here. These 12 apostles, they are the laborers that the Lord is sending out into the harvest. Jesus tells them to pray for the Lord to send out laborers. And then he makes them the answer to their own prayers as he sends them out. So that's why today's sermon is called The Harvest and the Laborers. The first few verses of chapter 10, this is the answer to the prayer at the end of chapter 9. These are the laborers. And so over the whole rest of chapter 10, which we're going to be unpacking over the next three weeks, is all about Jesus preparing them for this mission to go gather in God's people. And and so this is, chapter 10 is the next big teaching section in Matthew. And and it's all about Jesus equipping and and preparing his, his 12 apostles for this mission. Now, already, I hope you've seen, there's some big lessons here for prayer. We're going to look at them in a minute. But first, let's break down these five verses, and, and we're going to just really quickly look through them and look at, at four aspects of Jesus' mission that he gives to these 12 apostles. First, we see the calling of the 12. Uh, verse 1, and he called to him his 12 disciples. Now, these were already his, his disciples. Uh, we've read in Matthew chapter 4, chapter 9, how he's called them to himself already. But he calls them to himself again. And we should notice that when he calls, they come. Uh, these men aren't volunteers. Uh, Jesus says, come, and, and they come. So Jesus calls, and they answer. There's an, there's an authority to the, this call. And uh, we're going to also consider that more in the study guide this week, those of you in small groups and anyone who wants to use the study guide, this idea of, of Jesus' authoritative call. Next, we see, so you've seen the calling of the 12. Next, the authority of the 12. Again, in verse 1, Jesus called them and gave them Authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Does that sound familiar? It sure does, right? Because that's what Jesus has just been doing. And now he gives his 12 disciples authority to do the same. 
And as we're going to see in verse 7, he sends them out to proclaim the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So in other words, Jesus is giving them authority to do the very things that he had just been doing. He's multiplying his ministry by 12. Now, big lessons here about leadership development, about apprenticeship. When Jesus called these 12 men to start following him, did they know that they were being apprenticed to be able to go do the same things themselves? Maybe not. Maybe they just thought they were following Jesus. But by having them follow him and watch him, Jesus is actually equipping them to then go do the same thing themselves. We should should recognize something else important here in verse 10, that this authority over every disease and affliction and the authority to, to cast out demons with their words are not given or is not given to each and every disciple of Jesus in all time. According to this passage, this authority is given to these specific 12 individuals. Now, in Luke's gospel, we see there's a second phase where this same authority is given to a group of 72. But nevertheless, there remains something very significant about this group of 12. Even up to the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul points to the the ability to perform these these signs and wonders, these miracles, as as something that was very closely associated with the apostles. He talks about the signs of an apostle. And we see the apostles had a unique authority in the church as they were the authoritative spokesmen for Jesus. Remember Acts 2, the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And so the, the idea of an apostle, which is, is used here by Matthew, and, and uh, in verse, um, man, I'm, I'm totally missing, missing this here, where the word, yes, verse 2, the names of the 12 apostles, okay, this is the first time this word is used. And, and, and an apostle is like, a, like an emissary or an ambassador or an envoy, someone who goes out representing someone else with a message. And, and that was given, this authority over diseases and demons was given to these 12 people. So for us today, does God still heal people and even deliver people from, from demons in response to our prayers? And the answer is, of course. But has God given each and every disciple this specific authority given in this passage? And, and the answer is, is not yes. And, and this, was, this was something specific and unique to these 12. And, and one of the reasons we know that is because our third point here is the identity of the 12. These 12 are named. So their, their identity as individuals matters. These aren't just, just a random group of 12. It's not just given to everybody. It was given to these specific 12 individuals. And we find their names in verses 2 to 4. So again, now we're looking at the identity of the 12. Now, it's interesting, as we look through these names, we notice two sets of brothers, uh, Peter and Andrew, James and John. Often, disciples of Jesus have to choose between Jesus and their family. We saw that a few weeks ago. We're going to see it again in a few weeks. But isn't it, isn't it a good thing when that doesn't have to happen and when, and when family members can serve Jesus together? And that's what we see here as these, these brothers, two sets of brothers serve Jesus together. Now, many of the other disciples we don't know a lot about. Philip, there's a bit we know a bit about him later on, um, or from, sorry, from earlier on. And John, there's Bartholomew, not much about him. Thomas, 
We know about his doubt and his faith after Jesus' resurrection. Matthew, he's the tax collector we've already met. Uh, but James, Thaddeus, I'd love to read a biography about these men. And, and most of them, though, we don't really have a lot of information on. And I think that's important because it, it wasn't about them. It was about the person who they represented. They were ambassadors for Jesus. And so uh, what do we have in the New Testament? We have not a lot about them. We have a lot about Jesus. And that's the way it should be. It's interesting. One guy we, we, we have some big questions about is Simon the Zealot. He's mentioned in verse 4. Now, the Zealots were a group of freedom fighters that some have called them like domestic terrorists who used violence to stir up rebellion against the Roman Empire. They would start start riots and they committed murder and all of that. And if that's what this name means here, if Simon is one of those zealots, it's kind of interesting that you got a zealot and a tax collector <laughs> among the 12. I mean, they're about as opposite as you could be, right? One works for Rome and one kills people to get rid of Rome. Uh, these guys would have hated each other apart from Jesus. Now. Some have said, you know, the zealots didn't actually really start to become active till later. And so maybe, maybe this just means that he's just a really passionate guy. Um, even so, we can see how diverse this group was. And then finally, there's Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. It's interesting to, to us, Judas kind of has this evil ring to us. But Judas is just from the Greek form of Judah. Like that, that would have been his name to the Hebrew speakers, just Judah. And at this point, people thought he was a great guy. He was given ability, the ability to cast out demons and heal the sick just like the rest. Makes me wonder if, if people had faith struggles when it came out that Judas was a fake. Did people say, man, he, he healed my uncle or he cast a demon out of my brother. And Really? He was just doing that for money? What? See, this... It's not a modern problem of us having to look past failed messengers and keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. There's so much here, folks. There's so many, so many lessons just, just, just dripping out of this passage. Here's one more thought about the identity of the 12. There's 12. That's important. You can't miss the echo to the 12 tribes of Israel. And in fact, uh, Jesus makes that connection clear. Matthew nineteen twenty eight. You who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So, in the final judgment, or, or at one point in there, that there's going to be a judgment, and and these twelve are, uh, and, and this, that judging could refer to just the ruling that's going to happen in in the in the final kingdom. But these twelve apostles are going to judge. The 12 tribes of Israel. So there's this connection between apostles and tribes. And, and, and we might think that there's one apostle from each tribe. These are the representatives from the 12 tribes. But that's not the case because there's two sets of brothers. Right? And so if there's brothers from the different tribes, then there's no way that there's one guy from each tribe. So what's this telling us? Twelve apostles, but not from twelve tribes. What it's telling us is the same thing we've seen several times in Matthew up till this point. With the arrival of Jesus, being a part of the people of God is not about your tribal lineage. It's not about 
who you came from. It's not who you trace your family tree back from, even if that's through Abraham. Remember John the Baptist. Don't save yourselves. We're children of Abraham. God can raise up children of Abraham from these stones. It's not about your family tree. (coughs) It's about whether you believe in Jesus, whether you're faithful and have faith in the Messiah or not. And so we see again, something we've seen many times, that Jesus is reforming the people of God around himself. And the people of God are no longer defined by family tree, but by faith in the Messiah. Now, it doesn't mean that being Jewish means nothing anymore, because all 12 of these apostles are Jewish. And there's some great things in Romans 11 about about the final salvation of the Jewish people. But nevertheless, whether you're Jew or Gentile, we're grafted into the people of God by faith in Jesus. And we can't miss that. So finally, uh, finally here we see the sending of the 12. Okay, so we've seen... The calling of the twelve, the authority of the twelve, the identity of the twelve, now the sending of the twelve. Verse five, these twelve Jesus sent out. And and we're going to really end there today. We're going to come back next week and consider that some more. But just notice, they were sent. Jesus didn't ask them, what would you think about going, maybe? No, they, they were sent. And so they went. And even if this isn't what they expected, Right? We don't know if they were thinking, whoa, look, I agreed to follow you. I, I didn't agree to go out by myself. Or, really? But they didn't have a choice. Jesus calls, Jesus sends, and they go. They obeyed Jesus at, at the beginning when he called them to himself, and now they obey him as they go. This is another reason why this series is called The Spread of the Kingdom, because now we see the, the kingdom going out as the message is carried out by these 12. And we're going to pick up like this, like I said, next week at uh, this verse and carry on from there. But but for now, let's just not miss. Let's not miss a really important connection. Go back to chapter 9, verse 38. Pray earnestly, he said, to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Chapter 10, verse 5. These 12 Jesus sent out. They prayed and they got sent. And who sent them? Jesus. So who is the Lord of the harvest then? See, this is this is one of those important clues, another one of those important clues in Matthew to the identity of Jesus. Matthew is asking us to reflect on, on the very close relationship, which hasn't been fully spelled out yet but the very close relationship between Jesus and the Lord, God. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. Jesus sends out laborers. So what's the connection between Jesus? And, 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 and we know we're, that this is, is going to the full revelation of Jesus as the Son of God, the Father's agent who does what the Father does because he is God. But the disciples don't go before they're equipped and taught. And that's what the next three weeks are looking at as we consider chapter 10 and all that Jesus says to them. So just so you know, as we end here in, in, in verse 5, we're sort, of, we're sort of ending in midstream. And there's, there's a lot more for us as we keep going here about the, the mission of the 12 that we're going to look at next week. But this is a good time for us to pause. And what we're going to do 
is we're going to just consider three ways that today's passage, with what we've seen, three ways that today's passage speaks to us today. There's a lot that's different. There's a lot that's different. But as we've seen, a summary of Jesus' ministry, a glimpse into Jesus' heart, a call from Jesus to pray, and a mission to Jesus' apostles. I think there's some things here that we can learn. So we're just going to highlight three of them. Three ways that, that we can learn from and apply today's passage. The first is that we would share Jesus' heart. Remember how Jesus saw the crowds and had shepherd-like compassion on them? We should want to share in and cultivate Jesus' compassion for people. Now, this compassion is not like worldly compassion. It doesn't come from this misguided idea that people are inherently good and deserve compassion. Like we've been hearing in adult Sunday school over the last few weeks, people don't have inherent goodness. That The mission of God is ultimately grounded not so much in our worth, even though we do have worth in that we're made in the image of God, but even that all points back to the worth of God. It all is about God's worth and God's glory. And yet, one of the things that makes God glorious is that he has compassion on people who don't deserve it. And that's what we see here from Jesus. And Jesus has already explained this to us back in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. That's what God is like. Think of how many wicked people God is keeping alive right now through his grace that they don't deserve. And Jesus calls us to imitate our Father's heart in this way. So when you look around the world today, do you see a bunch of messed up people that you want to avoid as much as possible? Or do you see a bunch of people who in their own ways are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd? What goes on in your heart? Would you ask God to give you a heart that feels compassion like Jesus does? That your heart would go out to them? That is what God is like. And in the Sermon on the Mount, that's what Jesus calls us to be like. So that's the first way that, that we can put this passage to work in our hearts is to share in Jesus' heart. The second is that we would answer Jesus' call to pray. Remember, that's what Jesus' heart of compassion led to. His heart went out to them, so he called his disciples and told them to pray. And we can do the same. Remember that Jesus' call to pray was not made just to the twelve. right? He called his disciples, asked them to pray, and then from that group called the twelve. And so this call to pray for God to send workers was given to all of the disciples. And that's not uh, a surprise to us, Because all throughout the Bible, if we look at all of the cases of prayer in the Bible, we see that over and over and over again, in fact, the majority of the time, prayer is about asking God to do what he's promised to do, keep his promises, and fulfill his mission. And remember right there in the Sermon on the Mount, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. That's that's the mission. 
your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the harvest. That's people being saved and, and, and rescued and, and giving clean hearts to obey the Lord. This is what prayer is for. This is what prayer is about. And as we pray like this, you know what we find is that just like the apostles, our hearts get shaped that we want to participate in it. As we pray for things, that makes us be ready to actually be the answers to those prayers. You've heard, one of the, you've heard this phrase, I'm sure, that prayer changes things. You know, one of the first things that prayer changes is the person praying as, as, as it fits us to respond to those prayers. So I was going to invite you to tonight, the prayer service at 6.30, but that's going to be next Sunday. And we're going to be spending the whole prayer service just praying for the mission in which we spent some time in every prayer service doing that. But we want to, we want to take some time to, just, to, to answer the call of Jesus here. And so that's a really practical thing you can do is join us. Here's another way is that we would just regularly, earnestly pray for the fulfillment of the mission of God. Pray for unreached peoples. Ask God to send workers into the harvest that has continued from the time of Jesus up until now. There's some great tools that you can use for that. I'm using my phone to record right now or else I'd show you a couple of apps. There's the the Unreached People's uh, Unreached of the Day app from the Joshua Project. There's the Operation World app that you can get, both which are just helpful uh, tools that, that will daily give you prompts to pray for unreached people groups in the world, for nations of the world, that, 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 uh, and it highlights the needs that, that, that they have. These are great ways to get us praying for people and praying that the Lord of the Harvest would send workers. That, that, that's what I do. And I see that those unreached peoples come up every day I pray, God, please send the gospel to them. I'm praying for workers to go to those people. This is what prayer is for. Prayer is not about us writing our personal wish lists. Prayer is about us aligning our hearts with the mission of God and asking for the fulfillment of God's purposes. And as we do that, we find we become shaped to become the answers to that prayer, those prayers. So I encourage you, answer Jesus' call to prayer. And watch what happens. Now finally, number three, I want to invite each one of us to actually participate in the mission. Our mission today has mushroomed out a lot bigger than even this mission to, uh, that Jesus gave to his apostles. Remember how initially it was just Jesus and then the 12 and, and then it's, it's gone e- even bigger because the 12, it was just Israel and and then, and then Jesus said to them, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and, and to the ends of the earth, places like Nippowin. Then he said to his, to his disciples, go make disciples of, of all nations. Nevertheless, we're not a part of a different mission than what we see here in chapter 10. It's just a different phase of the same mission, the same end times harvest that began when Jesus came and continues until the harvest is complete and the Son of God returns. This is a mission that we don't have the option of participating in. Remember how the disciples were sent? Similarly, when Jesus told his disciples, when Jesus told his church to to go make disciples of all nations, we don't get to opt out of that. It's, It's not an optional thing for us. Jesus is not just our personal savior. Church is not just our hobby. Jesus tells us to follow him. He calls us to himself. 
And he is on a mission to bring the peoples from all nations of the world to himself. So if we're following Jesus, we're going to be on that same mission. There is no such thing. There should be no such thing as a Christian who is not involved in the mission of God. It's not a question of whether we participate. It's simply a question of what part in the mission we'll play. The question of whether we'll participate, Jesus has answered that already. The answer is yes. We participate in the mission. Jesus has made that decision for you already. The question is what part that we're going to play. What part will we play? And there are many different parts to play. If you think back to World War II, some soldiers fought on the front line. Some soldiers or some people worked in factories back home. Some people planted victory gardens so that there, more money could be sent to the war effort. There's all kinds of things that people did, but, but everything was shaped for the war effort. And, and similarly, in the church, as we labor to make disciples here and everywhere, and with a special heart and focus on the unreached peoples who have never heard, there are many, many, many different parts to play. But there are many different parts to play. We each have a part to play. And please, please hear this morning, that part to play is not just giving money to missionaries, as important as that is. That's one of the parts we play. We work jobs so that people like Charmin can go and, and go to the unreached peoples full time. But, but we should not have the idea that we pay missionaries to go share the gospel so that we don't have to. We all have a part to play in getting close to other people to help them get close to Jesus. We are disciples who make disciples. And again, there's a little bit more of this in the study guide that unpacks this further. So for some of you, what what, what will this mean for you to actually play a part in the harvest? Well, for some of you, it might mean moving across the world to bring the gospel to an unreached people group. Why not? Why not? For others of you, it might mean walking across the street to get to know your neighbors. Why not? For still others, it might mean walking across the room on a Sunday morning to shake a stranger's hand and build a relationship with someone who could use a Christian friend, someone to read the Bible with them. Why not? This week, would you be willing to open your hands to the Lord and tell him that you're at his service, that you belong to him, and that you're willing for anything? That's what it means to be a Christian. Would you ask God to help you, along with your brothers and sisters, to discern the part of the great mission that that he would have you play? Maybe you're listening or watching this and, and you don't know Jesus. You haven't been harvested. Might I remind you that you can't stay neutral about Jesus? We must respond in faith or we must reject him and suffer the eternal consequences. Would you come to Jesus this morning? And if you need help with that, knowing what that means, would you talk to someone who knows about Jesus and and give them the privilege of of helping you get close to your Savior? We're going to be singing a new song this morning. I encourage you to go look it up if you're not familiar with it. It's a song by by the Gettys called For the Cause. Here's how how the words of of that first verse say. For the cause of Christ the King, We give our lives an offering till all the earth resounds with ceaseless praise to the Son. For the cause of Christ we go 
some of us to other nations, some of us across the street, some of us across the room. But for the cause of Christ, we go with joy to reap, with faith to sow, as many see and many put their trust in the sun. The harvest is plentiful. God is drawing people to himself. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. And may God give each of us a heart that opens up our hands and says, for the cause, Lord, for the cause of Christ, whatever. I'm in. I'm yours. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this vision of the mission of Jesus, the heart of Jesus, the summons from Jesus to pray, and the action of Jesus in sending his disciples out. Father, would you help each one of us learn from this what we must? And by your Holy Spirit, would you empower us to joyfully obey and to joyfully trust what we have seen here today. May we walk by faith and delight to do your will, O Lord. For the cause of Christ, may we truly give our all, because this is what life is for. Keep us safe, Lord, in the rest of this day and in the next days ahead. And bring us together with joy in a week's time, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.